on the move. This is Mike Africa Jr. And this is my podcast where we illuminate the issues and struggles of the people, inform the uninformed and give you nothing but the truth. On the move is here to disrupt the system and spark a global revolutionary change. On the move, on the move, on the move. It's a really good day. I'm excited to have here with us today. I finally got her on the show. We've been we've been trying to we've been we've been playing uh, show tag for a minute there. Finally got her on the show. She's an author, a screenwriter, director, and an activist. And while most of you recognize her for the six-minute video that went viral during the 2020 uprising, I think the world has so much more to learn from this person. And her name is Kimberly Latrice Jones. Welcome to the show. On the move, Kim. Welcome to the show. Oh my God. I'm like so excited to be here. I'm such a fan girl, Mike. You're a fan, you're a fan of what? You're a fan of what? I'm a fan of you. <laughs> you're a fan of Mike Africa Jr. Yes. Well, thank you. Listen, I'm a fan of you. So you're from Chicago, right? Born and raised. All right. Now, as you get to know Mike Africa Jr. more, you'll learn that like I'm all about information. I remember when um when when KRS came out with edutainment, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And um it, you know, it, he educated Kate you while he entertains you. Yeah. I'm all about giving people information in a way that they, you know, like to receive it. Entertainment is a big thing. Yeah. So there's this segment on the show that we call the hot seat. The hot seat is I'm gonna ask you some questions, and I need you to uh, rapid fire questions. I want you to just answer them with first thing that comes to mind. You ready? Okay. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Yes. LeBron or Jordan? LeBron. Ooh. Okay. Uh, Common or Kanye? Kanye. Shy or ATL? Shy. Okay. You're going to get some mail. People are going to be hitting you up. <laughs> How can you say you said that about? Okay. Why'd you choose? Why'd you choose LeBron over Jordan? LeBron frees people from prison. Jordan owns prisons. Ooh. Ooh. Shout out to the people that love Jordan. He love his game, but he got more <laughs> than just game, right? Yo. Um, all right, and you said Kanye over Common. Mm-hmm. Okay, why? Kanye over Common. Um, well, because um, I am, uh, you know, a degree of separation from, from Kanye. Kanye and I, it would be a stretch to say that we're friends. Um, but we, in our younger days, um, interacted. We have mutual friends in Chicago. And I personally, and this is just my humble opinion, whether I agree or disagree with him, I don't always agree with Kanye. But what I do appreciate and respect about Kanye is his freedom of voice, his ability to take the hits that come his way and then not be muted. And so I'm always going to respect that in anybody. I appreciate that. Did you rap with him? Because I, I know I heard that you uh you were spitting some bars back in the day, right? Did you get a chance to rap with him? <laughs> I never got a chance to rap with him. And it's so funny because my partner always laughs at me because I'm like, I'm a rapper. And he's like, you are not, ma'am. And I'm like, you're right. I'm right. Oh, man. <laughs> so, so I read in your bio, because we were talking about this. I read in your bio that that was your first love. Your first love was music. You wanted to rap and you had a you had a dream to battle. Who, who'd you have a dream to battle? You had a dream to battle the brat? Yes, I wanted to battle the brat because she's from my city. So I was like, it's going to be me and Brat against the world. But now I'm just like, a huge, I'm, I'm such a Brat fan. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love her. So it would have been an honor. But now I'm like fully aware that now and even then, I ain't want that smoke from Brat. <laughs> yeah, Brat will light the mic up. I, yeah. I, I seen her yeah. in action. She liked them. I mean, yeah. 
I never met her before, but like just listening to her music, yeah, she fire. First female to go platinum. Yeah? Yeah, first female to go platinum. Salt and pepper? Functified. MC Light? Gold. Yeah. Gold, gold, wow. gold, gold, gold. Congratulations. Gold, gold, gold. Congratulations yeah. to Brat. Yeah. Yep. Told you I'm a fan of history. <laughs> if your rap game was like your knowledge game, you you I'm sure you laid down some bars on the on the mic too though. Back, yeah, back in the day. Now I got no business grabbing on my phone. <laughs> I listen, I used to rap I, I used to rap a couple day a uh, couple bars here and there and, and at this age now I'm like, yeah, you know what? I, I look back at some of the things I did back then and I'd be like, Wow, I did that. I hope nobody I hope nobody hear that. You know what I mean? Like, I'm so glad there wasn't a social media back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people would be pulling your stuff from back in the day and be like, Yeah, you said this right here. Yeah, right. Let's get to the activism part of this thing, right? First of all, when I first saw uh, Kimberly Jones, you know, I thought of a different person, you know, because I'm like, well, yeah, Kimberly Jones. There's, yeah, there's another Kimberly Jones that's really popular. Little Kim. Right. So I'm yeah, like, I'm like, wow, okay, <laughs> she's spitting some knowledge. And then I saw you and I was like, okay, hold on, this is different. This is different. So then, and then, um, and I heard your analogy and the information, and I'm just like, yo, that's, that's some powerful information right there, you know. And I never heard anybody put it like that before. So to, to hear you talk about it was just a very, very powerful thing for me to witness and the, and the articulate, you know. Um, and after you did that, you know, what I noticed about it, you got really emotional. What, where, what was that emotion coming from? You know, I, I, on that day in particular, I was just so worn and so tired. And, and just to give you a little bit of backstory, I had just months prior to that, I tried to put together a community cleanup in the Bankhead area here in Atlanta. And I had like almost nobody show up. I had like two or three people show up to do the community cleanup. So on that day, I was actually out there with um, a documentary filmmaker who had asked me to do some man on the street with him. This was right after um, the civil unrest here in Atlanta. And so we're downtown Atlanta and there were all of these African-American people downtown cleaning up. They had brought in buckets. They had purchased their own like chemicals to get graffiti off the wall. And they were all downtown cleaning up. And there was a sprinkle of different cultures, but it was predominantly black people. And so I'm asking them, you know, I'm doing the man on the street and I'm asking them, do they live by? Is this their neighborhood? They're saying no. So I started asking people why they felt compelled to come down and clean up after the civil unrest. And the kind of like the universal answer that I got from everybody was like, I don't want people to think that this is how we all behave. So it was this notion that they were more concerned about the white gaze. And I and, and so then I started to ask them, have you ever done a community cleanup in a marginalized black neighborhood in Atlanta? And you, and they all and they were all no. So you never actually went to a marginalized community in Atlanta to clean up for the betterment of your people, but you have spent your own money buying equipment to come out here and clean up because you are concerned about the white gaze. You are concerned that during the revolution, you want to make sure you're revolting in a way that's palatable to your oppressor. And so it upset me so much. It upset me so much that the person that I was with, I started talking to him, the filmmaker, and he said, hang on, sis. He's like, I, what you're talking about, I got to record this. And he turned his camera on and that's when you got that six minute video. You know, it's interesting, like, to hear people say, to hear people complain about the um, the broken windows, and for their voices to be louder than 
the complaints about the broken necks and the broken spines right. of black people. And broken skulls of babies. Right. They were complaining about the windows and we like, nah, you, you, you're complaining about the wrong broken thing. You know, so I, I, exactly. I, get what you, I got you on that. I mean, it was it was really telling as to how people really felt in that in that moment. Yeah. Where are you on that project right now? So that project was not my project. That um, that project belonged to David Jones. I think in the corner of the video, you see David Jones Media. So I was just a- assisting him with that. That's a project that he's been um a project that he's been working on. Um, and so I think he's continuing. I know he's been continuing to ga- gather footage. I haven't spoken to him in a while, but I'm, I know he's continuing to gather footage. But myself personally, I have, um, you know, I'm a filmmaker by trade. And so I have some projects that I'm working on. I have an overall deal with Warner Brothers. So I'm working on some content um, right now that I'm getting ready to put out. That'll probably the Initial project won't roll out until 2022. Um, so that's kind of like where I've been focusing my energy. So I have some documentaries and scripted series um, that I'm working on that continue to push the conversation about the movement, about where we are. I'm a huge fan of history. My mother um, worked in corporate America, but always had had a deep desire to be a history teacher. That's what she wanted to be. Um, it was a dream deferred. But because of that, she always made sure that her kids were educated and knew how to research and find information for ourselves. So because of my mother nurturing that in me, I'm a huge lover of history. So there's quite a few unsung heroes. Um, You know, when you look at people like Elizabeth Keys that nobody knows about and um, the struggles that Zora Neale Hurston went through and um, women like Stagecoach Mary and the 761st Tank Battalion who were basically to the ground what the Tuskegee Airmen were to the air and they definitely have never gotten their just due. So it's like I'm working to bring those stories to the forefront. So you talk, I mean, we're in Black History Month right now. You just mentioned a few names that people don't know much about. The, pur- the purpose of, his- of history is so that we can understand how we move forward, right? So tell us a little bit about Stagecoach right, Mary. Right. What, what, what's a, what should we know about her? Stagecoach Mary. So here's the thing I love about Stagecoach Mary. She's like one of my favorite people from history. She was a mail carrier. So back in the day, um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, to be a mail carrier, you basically were like an Uber driver. It was your own business. You had to have your own stagecoach and you were responsible for a territory that you basically, it was literally like Uber for mail. Like you were responsible for your own, you had to have your own stagecoach. You were running your own little mini business. Business. And so many Black people didn't have the investment capital um, to get those, and they weren't g- being given the contracts. So the one of the few African Americans who were given a contract was Mary Fields, who eventually became known as Stagecoach Mary. She was a huge woman, six feet tall, broad. Um, and so what she did was not only did she become a mail carrier and start her own business, but she started making sure that other African-Americans were getting contracts, that she was assisting them with getting the stage coaches necessary, basically to be male Uber drivers for back in the day. But what she was famous for was that a lot of times what was known back then, because back then people used to send money in the mail and everything, and people would rob male stage coaches all the time because you could get all kinds of goodies, gold and money and jewelry and gifts and all of this in the mail. And so mail carriers got robbed often. She never lost a delivery because she was known to carry a 12 gauge with her everywhere. And anyone who tried to rob her stagecoach, she would pick them off. The mail must go through. (laughs) 
She's like, the male must go through even if I have to shoot them. So yeah, she she was this she was this this amazing character. Um, she lives right outside of Philadelphia, and even and they they had banned women from being in bars. But actually, on the law books in the city that she was in, it said all women are banned for bars except, except for Mary Field. Nice. Except for Stagecoach Mary, because they know she, they knew she liked to. Well, well, she carried a twelve gauge. What you expect? <laughs> And she loved whiskey. And she loved whiskey. Okay, okay. Hey, that's that's her that's her way, right? <laughs> so so um that's that uh that's really in- interesting information. Um, especially during this time, you know, people people doing what they got to do, and you know, people have families. They got to do mm-hmm. what they got to do to support their families. Yeah. How did you come up with the monopoly analogy? Here's the okay. So it's multi tiered, right? So I was just earlier in that year in January. I had taught economics. There's an amazing organization that I've been working with for years called the Girls Who Brunch Tour. And it is a national tour um, that does these specialty weekends for young women. And all young women of color are welcome to come, but they particularly try to target young women who are in the foster care system um, and and young women, um, young girls, really, who are having a little trouble. Right. And so Girls Who Brunch Tour does this weekend where they teach workshops and classes and pamper them um, and bring in, you know, um, powerful women to give to do panels with them. They have dance contests. It's like this entire day. It's like a, a women's conference on steroids. But for but for girls between the ages of seven and 17. And so I've been a participant with the Girls Who Brunch Tour for many years. And so this year I was teaching economics and I utilized Monopoly um, to teach economics. Um, and I and I taught them the history of, of, of Monopoly, that Monopoly was a game that was created by a woman. And then that game was stolen from her, essentially from Parker Brothers and that kind of thing. And that she actually used it. She wanted to teach disparagement in economics. If you play the original Monopoly game that she invented, she wanted to teach disparagement in economics and that's what it was for. And so I used it for that same, um, for that same reason to teach the girl. So it was on my spirit. But now I realized that I was a thief and that, uh, that, um, you realized you was a thief. I was a thief. I realized I was a thief uh, because what I realized is, oh, my God, his name is going out of my head as well as I know his name right now. But there's a there's an OG activist who had done a monopoly analogy like 40 years ago. I had never heard it. But once my video went viral, people started sending it to me like, oh, did you get this from here? And I'm like, I swear, I never, I never, I swear, I, like, nah. I never, I had never heard it or seen it. It was just in my spirit because I had used it to teach economics to the girls. All right. Well, listen, when you, when you're tuned in to something, you know, and somebody else is tuned into it, you can't help that you're thinking alike. Yeah. You know? No. And I think it was like, it's one of those things where I tell people all the time on that day that I felt like I checked out of my body and that the ancestors took over and were speaking. And so I'm like, I don't know where that message came from, honestly. Mm. That information is is powerful information. I had to look it up. It's Dr. Claude Anderson. That's who originally did it. Dr. Claude Anderson. Okay. We got this new, this new administration, right? Mm-hmm. Biden and mm-hmm. Harris. What do you think about this? Uh, she's black and, and what Southeast Asian, is it? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Does that change the economic standpoint of black people in this country? 
No, it doesn't. I think that what we've learned is that we have a better shot of making changes at the local level than we do at the federal level. We need some federal laws and bills passed in order to pad the work that we need to do locally. But truthfully, the local work affects you far more on a daily basis. And your local politicians are far more accessible and really controllable and manageable and can be held accountable more so than politicians at the federal level. So I think the best thing that we could have done just at a local level, like what we did here in Georgia with getting Ossoff and Warnock in office, is giving the Democratic Party an opportunity to, to control the floor so that some of the demands that we've made, some of the things that we know we are in alignment with can get done. But at the end of the day, it's your local politics that really matter and that really affect you. I live here in Atlanta. There is a county line on Moreland and Memorial. On one side of the street, you're in DeKalb County. On the other side of the street, you're in Fulton County. In Fulton County, marijuana is decriminalized. In DeKalb, it's not. So in Fulton County, if you get caught with a user's amount of um, marijuana, you get a $50 ticket. In DeKalb, you go to jail. And so it's like that you could literally stand on one side of the corner. What's the difference? Why is it, why is it like that across the street? Because the people in that county have not passed a decrim bill, whereas in Fulton, they have passed a decrim bill. So you can stand on one corner, go to jail, cross the street and get a ticket. And I always use that as an example of how important your local politics is, because it literally is what affects your day to day. What is it that made them pass it on one side and not the other side? Was it not introduced in the other side? It just was not introduced on the other side. And at that time, I think they do now and they're moving towards it. But at the time, a few years ago when this passed, they didn't have the advocacy on in DeKalb at the way in which they did in Fulton. Fulton had the advocacy. The growers um, were, put, were putting pressure on Fulton. The, the local lobbyists were putting pressure on Fulton. The local activists were. There were several um, councilmen on the floor like Kwanzaa Hall who, you know, who were trying to initiate pro-cannabis bills, particularly for medical and growing um, cannabis bills. And so they had the advocacy for it. And so this is where I tell people you are empowered. If you live in DeKalb and you want that bill, then you have to build the advocacy system in your county to get it passed. And you can do that locally. You can't have that same effect on the federal level, not as an average citizen, because everybody knows federal is big money lobbyist. So when we're talking about like Harris and Biden, mm -hmm. just thinking about marijuana specifically, there's a lot of people mm -hmm. that are in prison because of marijuana today. We just saw a brother come home from prison. I think his name is Michael Thompson. Mm -hmm. He was in prison for 25 years for marijuana charge while he was in prison. His parents died. He was in prison long enough to see prison guards retire for marijuana. Yeah. Uh, for many of us, we saw Biden pass these laws that led to the imprisonment of people like Michael Thompson. That 94 crown bill. What faith, if there is any, should we have in the reforming of Joe Biden? I personally think we should have minimal faith in any politician. Not just him. I think at the end of the day, we have to learn the systems that allow us to hold people accountable. And although it is very important that we take to the streets and we raise our voices, we also have to learn the system of how to hold politicians accountable, which is something that we don't do. We don't teach civics. And many of us don't understand civics. Like someone was saying to me recently, I was, I was talking to someone recently about a case and they were asking me, 
how the case should go and how the case should work. And I said, basically, what we need to do with that case is we need to get the case moved. People don't know that you can get cases moved to different counties. So when you're looking at a case like a police brutality case and you are looking at the counties around you, you can lobby and put systems in place and talk to people who are on board that are that are lawmakers and legislators to get a case moved. So, for example, if I live in, you know, Encino, right, or what's what, or uh, I would say like here we have like Cobb, right. So if I live in Cobb and I know the DA in Cobb is conservative, is pro police, um, and all of that, I don't want a police brutality case charged in that county. I need to do the due diligence to get that that case moved to a county. What am I going to do? I'm going to research the counties where police 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 brutality cases have received the proper justice, where you have ha- actually had officers fired or lose their job or be prosecuted. So that's going to be my step one is to move, get that case moved to an acceptable county. Once I get that case moved to that county, my next step is to get people registered to vote. People say, why would you be concerned about getting people registered to vote? I get people registered to vote because the jury rolls are pulled from the voter rolls. So now I'm not registering them to vote because I'm concerned about their vote. I'm concerned about them being in the jury pool for the case that I just had moved there. You're working the system and finding those loopholes, finding those ways to 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 get some justice. Exactly. How did you learn about this stuff? Two places. I research, research, research all the time. I study all the time. But the smartest thing that I could tell people is you're only as smart as the 10 closest people to you. I surround myself with people who can direct me. One of my closest friends is the justice fighter, attorney Gerald Griggs, who's a civil rights attorney. When I get confused on something, I can pick the phone up and call Griggs and get the law. And he understands constitutional law better than anybody I know. I get Griggs on the phone and it's like, Griggs, I don't understand this, blah, 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 blah. Griggs, I just got an email from this organization. They're making this move. Does this make sense? Griggs, this is what's happening over here. What can we do legally to fix this situation? Even my organization that I'm a part of, I'm the entertainment and culture chair for an organization called the People's Uprising. We are a task force that is a mix of community organizers, activists, influencers, and legislators. So in that, we our organization is able to write policy. So when we come together, all of our committee departments, and we decide we want to get a bill on the table, we have legislators in our organizations who can go write those bills. So what kind of policy are you working on? Right now we're working on the Rayshard Brooks bill, which is very, because that case is super important to our organization. Tell us about the Rayshard Brooks bill. Yeah, that one, that one makes me heavy. So uh, Rayshard Brooks was the young brother who fell asleep at the Wendy's here in Atlanta and the police were called out and he was clearly, um, you know, inebriated. And so he basically had just kind of like pulled over in the Wendy's parking lot for his own safety. He wasn't driving. He wasn't harming anybody. He wasn't doing anything. And the workers called and said, this man has been asleep outside in his car. And after what I consider watching the full tape, a brutal interrogation for an extended long period of time, it was almost like militarized tactics in the way in which he was investigated for it. And, and, And to a point of exhaustion, like interrogated to a point of exhaustion, he had a scuffle with the police and he ran and they shot him in the back. Shot him in the back. I'm not a threat to you if my back is to you. Why did they shoot him in the back? Um, White supremacist delusion. And the greatest marketing plan that has ever been initiated in the world is the one to make you fear the black form. This is why you yell, stop acting like a child at a nine-year-old. 
I ask questions that might sound rhetorical, but there's a lot of people out there who actually are misinformed and they believe certain things. And it's very important for us to inform these people. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I asked why did they, why did they shoot him in the back? It's a real question for people who do not, who don't know. Um, so yeah. Why did they shoot him in the back? Why? Uh, Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times in uh, Kenosha, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Why did they shoot? Yeah. Why did they shoot him in the back? First of all, they don't fear any recourse because they've not witnessed any recourse. Second of all, if you have a numbness to the humanity of a group of people, their lives don't mean as much to you. Do you feel bad when you run over an ant? Do you feel bad if you step on living grass? No, because you don't have a sense of value to that life or that lived experience. When we got into Reagan's war on drugs, and we switched from community policing to militarized policing. You can even go back and look at the transition in uniform. The war on drugs literally was, was orchestrated as a war on the people. They even changed the uniforms. There's an amazing book by Dr. Cedric Alexander called Policing in the 21st Century, and it taps into this. The war on drugs created a, a on-the-ground military to manage the people. We stopped policing. No one polices anymore. We should not even use that term. This is where the defund movement comes from when we're talking about defunding the police. It's because we have moved into a militarized system of the way we manage people. We no longer, and for Black people it never was, have guardians of the community, which is the basis of policing, which is why you see countries like Great Britain where their officers don't even have guns, right? So this is not about public safety. We have on the ground military in the communities. Even the uniform is a militarized uniform. The equipment that they are giving is militarized equipment. It is a war on the people. So when you are trained in a tactical way, when you a soldier in the war will kill any target that they deem unruly and wily. Guardians of the community, public safety, which is what the Panthers were, which is real public safety. Public safety is no longer a thing. A militarized attack on the people has been the thing ever since Reagan initiated war on drugs. And that was amped up by that 94 crime bill and we've never reverted it. So the war against the people, the systemic war against the people never ended. The training that was changed. I've talked to police officers who were trained pre-war on drugs and now they do the training post-war on drugs and the training manuals, the system in which we have we train. The police training was dismantled and now they moved in military training. You train soldiers to kill. They're trained to kill. So if you deem someone human, it's instinctually not going to be, even in this militarized training, you are going to view civilians as civilians and not kill them. So you're going to view those civilians who look like you as civilians and handle them accordingly. But if you've been groomed to see the Black form as a threat, then that's when your military training and your coldness 
to life kicks in. It's systemic. So how do we change it? Well, the first thing we have to do is get rid of police unions because that's the real protector of what they do. You think it's the DAs, and it is. And you think it's the AGs, and it is. But the true power that goes unchecked is the police unions. The police unions are completely rogue and going unchecked. So this is why you don't see any real recourse for what's happening is because of the police union. And then they have immunity. They can kill you as part of their job and get away with it. So we have to get rid of that law. They can no longer have immunity to just kill people. I've heard it said that the Supreme Court, it's been requested to change qualified immunity for police officers when they kill. And the mm-hmm. Supreme Court has rejected yeah. rejected it every time. Why is that? This is true. Could be because the police unions got a whole lot of lobbying money. Let's just keep it real. Keeping it real? Yeah, keep it real. They got a they got a boat ton of lobbying funds and they are lobbying for these things. This is I, I love my brother 19 Keys. He always says that poor people vote and rich people lobby. And that is fact. But what we have to recognize is the power within ourselves to do grassroots lobbying at the local level to push back because I've seen it work. That's the thing. Like, I wouldn't get out here every day in these streets and risk my life if I had zero hope. I don't have zero hope. I'm not hopeless because if I was hopeless, then I could just sit at home, watch the Netflix and eat cookie dough and play video <laughs> right. games. I mean, you talk about, you talk about, you talk about hope and you talking about like um, black people, right? Now, this is the part of the conversation where we get explicit. Can we get explicit right now? And here's the question for you. Do black people have what it takes to get equality? We've been fighting for over 400 years, trying to get free, trying to get equality. And all this time, we are only where we are now. Do black people have what it takes to get equality? Yes, they do. All right. How? Talk to me. Because here's the thing. We underestimate the fight that our ancestors made to get equality. And we don't recognize that we no longer have to fight for equality, that what we should be fighting for is equity. And so I think it is a disservice to our ancestors when we say, like, I hear young people, because I see people think I'm young because I'm because I'm black and the sun don't affect me. I'm an old lady. You see these gray hairs? I'm an old lady. Um, black don't crack. <laughs> black don't crack. I was, I'm not going to tell you my age, but I'm going to say I was born in the 70s, not the 80s. Okay? So, um, <laughs> um I think we do a disservice to our ancestors when we say that they did nothing. And I think why I, I get really upset when I hear young people say, I'm not my ancestors. And I'm like, you are correct. You are not your ancestors because you make a hashtag and a post for one day and think you did something. And your ancestors walked until their feet were bloody in the bus boycott for 381 days straight. So no, you ain't them. And you ain't built like them. You ain't, you ain't built like the brothers and sisters in MOVE who figure it out. You ain't built like the Panthers who figured it out, who the school systems to this day still have programs that are in place that they borrowed from the Panthers. You ain't like those 14 lawmakers of reconstruction who public education, as you know it today, is because of them. No, you ain't your ancestors because they was built for tough. And so to look at where they were, we're talking about enslaved people who were not allowed to learn how to read, how to manage money, how to do any of that, who upon freedom were just released and told to figure it out 
And the Freedmen's Bureau, which was supposed to support them, what worked for about that long before President Johnson came in and basically reversed everything that the Freedmen's Bureau did. Because we always say, oh, we didn't get our 40 acres and a mule. That's not true. We did get our 40 acres and a mule. It's worse because they took it back under Johnson. It was given to us via General Oliver Howard, which is what Howard University is named after. When he had the Freedmen's Bureau, he didn't have much money to run the Bureau. But what he did have was hundreds of thousands of acres of land that was being disseminated, which is where the term 40 acres and a mule comes from. But then it was reversed and it was given back to the planner class in the South, the Democrats, because Lincoln, who was a Republican, ran with a Democrat as his VP, which is the reason why no one's ever did that again. So when Lincoln was killed, everything he did was reversed by the Southern Democrat, who then stepped up and became president. So you're talking about a people who had zero resources, who a generation later have Tulsa and Rosewood. And have built thriving communities who not, and those weren't the only communities like that. That's the one we talk, that's when you talk about Black Wall Street, there were several. It wasn't just the one in, in the Greenwood area of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So you're talking about people a generation later who own banks, businesses, churches, homes, shoe shops. And you know why? Because they have been doing all the work on the plantation. So who had the skill set? And then you're talking about 14 lawmakers who created laws that still affect us at today. 14 black lawmakers who made enough laws that affected our communities to this day. You're talking about black people not being able to go to restaurants, hotels, and being treated completely like second class citizens. And that was reversed because of the bloody feet of King. Okay. And talking about black people having what it takes, what is it going to take? What more can we do? The first thing that we have to do, because I know people don't want to deal in politics and they don't want to deal in the law, but this government is going to govern you whether you separate yourself from them or not. You are going to be affected by this governing body, whether or not you're going to do it. And the other thing is we have to realize that everyone doesn't have to do everything, that we can compartmentalize what it is that we need. So yes, some of us are going to have to work deep in politics. I'm one of those people. Like some of us are going to have to work deep in politics to, to dismantle some of these racist laws that are on the book to make sure that we are putting new bills on the table to make sure that we're talking to our local politicians to getting the necessary funding to build up our neighborhoods, to combat food deserts and things like that. While there's a bunch of us like my organization, while TPU is doing that, we we need until freedom to be out there fighting for the injustices. While we're doing that, there are people don't know this. There are black environmentalists who work very hard at trying to fix the environmental effects of of like cancer driven smokes and things that are in our community who are fighting against getting that change. You have seen how when we come on a positive note and something gets going, we start to permeate it throughout each other. How many black vegans you know now versus how many black vegans you knew 20 years oh, yeah. ago? Yeah, it's, it's definitely changing. It's it's is exponentially more. Yeah, exponentially more. So what we're doing is we're sitting back and we're looking at snapshots of the day and not watching the big picture changes. We're doing the work. This is a system that has been created. First of all, the system is working fine. It's working the way it was designed to work. The system isn't broken. The system is doing exactly what it was designed to do. So what does that mean for us? I hear people saying that a lot. The system is is working exactly 
like it was designed to work. What does that mean? It was designed, it was designed to keep black folks down. You got to keep the root of the system is, is being created during slavery. How do you justify owning a person unless you, A, propaganda everybody around them, including them, to believe that they are lesser than? And, and then you have to keep them in check. The 13th Amendment was post-Reconstruction because they figured out a way to get people black and savory. Okay, I can't get you to work for my company for free anymore, but if I lock you up, you can work for me for free. If I make it a law, if I make it an amendment saying that prisoners can work for free. So yeah, I can come over here and make your Victoria's Secrets bras for free through the prison system. I got y'all slaves back in jail. Prisoners making Victoria's Secret bras? They making all kinds of products. People who have long-term prison stays are working for all types of corporations for free. Nothing worth dang going to pay like no real job. And they're doing a real job. <laughs> I love your way. I love your way. You're right. Listen, <laughs> my dad was getting um my dad was making 15 cents an hour. See. For the same amount of labor that people on the street were making $25 an hour for. If that ain't a slave, I don't know what it is. So right now, 2021, um, Black History Month, even though we know Black History is every day of every month, one thing that I've been thinking about that's disproportionately affecting Black people is the, the coronavirus. I remember when the coronavirus first came out and they were, news reports were saying Black people can't even get coronavirus. Where are you on that? Please, y'all always try to figure out a way to get us. Um, I think that the reason... When, when, I, when I'm talking about this tiered system of how we have been brutalized, left out, and disadvantaged in every section, coronavirus is a reflection of that. We don't have proper healthcare systems in our community. I can take you right now to Bankhead. I can take you right now to the south side of Chicago. I've lived in a lot of hoods, right? I, people say that all the time. They like listen to me talk and they're just like, I don't know. They be expecting like Michelle Obama to show up. I'm like, nah, this is so, so soldier showing up. Like I'm just a hood chick who love my people. Right. I'm just, I grew up on the south side of Chicago in the wild hundreds. I left there and went and, and came to Atlanta and lived with family in Bankhead, went out to live with my family in Compton and came back and lived in Bankhead. I just stopped living in the hood last year. So what I'm saying is I done lived in hoods all over the country. And I can tell you what I never, I rarely saw healthy food, medical facilities and gyms. But I tell you what I did see liquor stores, corner stores with outdated products and fast food restaurants. So we're at a health disadvantage out the gate. So something like coronavirus is going to ravage us because we have diabetes, high blood pressure, food-related illnesses. They said they're going to give us the vaccine to help uh, us. And they want to make sure that black people get the vaccine so that because they recognize that we're disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. How do you feel about that? That's good, right? Here's how I feel about that. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Again, everything's always multi-tiered with me. First of all, there are systems. I'm not, I'm not even going to debate whether I'm pro or anti-vaccination. I'm just going to talk about science for a second, right? Let's talk about science for a second. The science of it is whenever we create systems, we create vetting systems and we should do it when we're not in a panic because then we will do it thoroughly and it will get its due diligence. 
So when creating vaccines, let's say like people have the vaccine for like HPV, right? When creating a, a, a vaccine for something like HPV, there was not a sense of urgency of it needing to be rushed. So it went through the proper vetting system to make sure that it would not cause mass death, right? So just because we have an emergency, now we're going to skirt a system that was put in place to make sure you don't result in massive death and say, well, we need it on the emergency tip. So all of the productive scientific systems that we have put in place to vet these vaccines, we're throwing those out the window and we're going to get you a vaccine that normally would take us like four to five years to roll out. We're going to get it to you in a year, less than a year, in months. So I don't trust systems that ain't the proper system to start with. And then you have to deal with the fact if you actually say that you're trying to get woke and you're trying to do better and you're trying to fight your own implicit bias and white supremacist delusion, then you have to know the history and stop saying black people don't want our vaccine and start saying things like the Tuskegee experiments have broken the trust between the medical industry and black people. And we have to be conscious of that when we're trying to roll out vaccines. Check your language. Check your language. So <clears throat> the Tuskegee experiments, smallpox wrapped in blankets, they're part of the history of the man, the These white here man. United States. The vaccine that they're giving out, Obama took it, right? Biden took it. Harris took it. How come it can't be trusted? Because the medical industry has not still done its due diligence to earn our trust. Not when black women are still dying in higher numbers during childbirth because no one's actually listening to them and paying attention to their systems. Their, their warning shots when something is wrong with them. Not when we still, by and large, even in terms of diabetes treatment, get the most severe and potentially deadly diabetic treatments that they don't offer to other people. And there are diabetic treatments that they don't offer to our people just because of economic price point and don't even check to see if people have the economics to do those systems. So the medical industry has not done its due diligence to regain our trust. And I don't care how many people you poke on YouTube the work has not been done to regain the trust of black people with the medical industry. And the United States has not necessarily done the work it needs to do to gain the, the trust of black people. Y'all still shooting us in the back. We don't still trust y'all. We trust y'all for shit. And we'd be dumb to trust you. I hear you. Uh, yeah, we'd be crazy to trust. So you said you knew who I was, right? What if you wanted to know about me? Any questions that you had that you wanted to ask me? Any information? I'm, I'm right here. Let's talk. Here's my question. How has it being the child of prisoners, how has that affected your view of the world? Of the world? Political prisoners. Of this world. It's given me a really like an inside view, an inside look on prison. And um, you know how they say prison is a microcosm of society? Right. You know, that's really true. Like when you listen to your father on the phone talk from prison, talk about the things that's happening in prison. And, and he say, oh, man, this guy, oh, oh, Mike, man, this guy, he messed up over here, man. He high. And I'm like, Hi. and that's as a child, I'm thinking like, high, is drugs in jail? Like, I thought that was just something that's on the street. But it ain't, you know, everything that, he, my, my father told me, he said, everything that you can think of that happens on the street is also in the prisons. 
And how is that? They're bringing these things in. The guards are all involved in things. And so it just gave me an understanding that the prison system wasn't really built for the purpose of correcting anything. In Pennsylvania, they're called SCI facilities, State Correctional Institution, and they don't actually correct anything. If prison was the answer to crime, then how come crime is increasing? If prison was the answer to crime, how come in, in 1981, there were eight state prisons across the state of Pennsylvania, but by, the, by 1993, with the help of people like Biden, how is it that we had 28, 28 state prisons? If the answer is in prison, then, then things would have gotten better, but they haven't. And not only have they not, not gotten better, but the crime inside the prison itself is worse because they, just like in the community, they strip away all of the resources, all of the things that give a person dignity and give a person like hope and encouragement, all of the music programs, the extra extracurricular, the boxing programs, the weightlifting, everything that helped prisoners be better people, they took it away from them. And when you take away these things, what happens? Violent crime goes up. People are less interested in playing a trumpet and more interested in, in beating someone up. Because when they don't have something constructive to do, they, have, they, they then become destructive. You know, it's the same thing I'm saying about the 13th Amendment and prisoners working for, like you said, your dad's working for 15 cents an hour, right? If you dismantle those types of systems and you set up a system where, like you said, you bring back all these programs, music and boxing and all of these things that are, and when people are released from prison, that we have systems in place that give them a path to rejoining society, because there's no path to rejoining society. Not at all. Prison. Not at all. My parents came home after 40 years. And when they came home, if it was not for the support from myself and, and my family, it's very likely that they could have ended up homeless. Because they, they you know, you, you don't have anything coming out of prison. There's no. And, and you know, the, the tragedy with my parents specifically is the, the district attorney who worked on putting them in prison. The mayor who was involved in dropping the bomb on our house. All of these people are now like coming back now all these years later, apologizing for what they did to my parents and to our family. Yet I almost, almost put my middle on your podcast, Mike. Put it up. Put them, put them, put them both up. Those people, those people haven't done anything to support them, even though they're apologizing for them being in the situation that they're in right now. Like I got this quote where I say apology without action is meaningless. And that really is what applies to Biden in this situation. He talks about um, he's sorry for what he did in the crime bill. Right. But what is he doing to reverse that? What is he doing to change and, and, and free some of these people that he put in prison? You know, for all of these years, there's people that's been in prison for 30 years that. If they had only spent 30 days in prison, they would have never done what they did again. And some of these people right. are in prison and never committed a crime at all. So um, right. the prison system is, is, is really a problem. This is the same system that executed a 14-year-old child. Talk about it. What are we so, talking about? We're talking about Sweeney Jr., the youngest person to be on death row and was actually executed. He was so tiny that they had to put phone books up underneath him to put him in the electric chair. We're talking about that prison system. Same system. So what's next for Kimberly Latrice Jones? 
have a couple things going. Um, one is I'm going to continue to work with my organization. Again, my organization is called TPU. It's called it's the People's Uprising. Um, we were formulated as an organization to do exactly what I talked about in my video, which is to combat the why of of civil unrest and uprisings. And so this is why we are a collective of activists, community leaders, and legislators so that we can actually change the laws so we can actually start to tackle some of the disparities that lead to, to unrest. So I continue to do work with the People's Uprising. I also have an organization that I run with my dear friend and close one of my closest friends, my sister, Yanajaha Lone Wolf, another activist, um, and Char Bates. The three of us um, founded an organization called Revolutionary Healing um, because one of the things that we feel like um, we have to tackle with Black people because of how we're treated is our mental health and the ancestral trauma um, that affects Black people. And so we have an event every third Sunday of the month um, called Revolutionary Healing, which is free to the public. Unless we have something crazy like we're doing zip lining or something that has to be paid for, for the most part, it's free to the people. And that third Sunday is a full day retreat. We do it out in nature. We incorporate our Native brothers and sisters who always come in. We do sweat lodge. We talk about the land. Um, we have free yoga. We have griot classes from legends who teach about economics, finance, relationships, marriage, um, all of that history. Um, we serve, you know, vegan food, organic teas. We make it a full experience every third Sunday of the month and it's called revolutionary healing. So I'm going to continue. We'd like to grow and expand revolutionary healing to when it's safe that we would like to tour it and be able to do it throughout the country for people. Um, continuing to write, I'm working on several novels. I'm working on a novel called How We Can Win, which is an, an extension of my video. I'm also working on a book called The Tower, which is me finally telling my mother's story so my mother can finally get her just do. My mother programmed robots that delivered the mail in the Sears Tower in 1976, and nobody knows that. Um, yeah, I'm working on my mom's story as both a novel and as a TV series. So, and um, I'm working on several documentaries, and I'm also working with my business partner, T Dog the Don, who is a, a, a Southern rapper. We are working on building our own streaming network so we can control the narrative of Black content. And how can people find you to, to learn more about what you're doing? I am on social media. You can follow me on Twitter. It's Kim Latrice Jones. That's K-I-M-L-A-T-R-I-C-E Jones. On Instagram, it's Kimberly Latrice Jones. And then on Facebook, it is I am Kim Latrice. Well, thank you very much for being here, Kim. This I, this was a uh, pleasure. I appreciate you. For, I appreciate you coming out here. I'm doing this with yes. me today. This, um, this is an important moment for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for you. I'm so grateful for you. And I'm so proud of you for standing the fight for your parents. Oh, so grateful that. for you. Thank you. So thank proud you. of you. Yo, that's it for the day, y'all. If you learned something new or you like what you heard, drop a raised fist emoji in the Instagram or Twitter at On The Move Podcast. And make sure you rate, review, subscribe to keep this movement moving. You got a comment? Hit me up at Mike Africa Jr. On the Move with Mike Africa Jr. is executive produced by me, Mike Africa Jr. and Tommy Oliver and produced and edited by Crystal Hill and made for the people.